Doing the impossible is not something you make happen. It's something that you allow to happen. After conducting over 10,000 personal and group coaching sessions over the last decade, author and personal coach Jason Dries has unlocked the simple yet effective formula to accept and create success in your life on the most basic, instinctive level. In his latest book, Do the Impossible, Jason gives readers access to the same life-changing principles he provides in his personal coaching sessions. Ready to embrace success as a state of being? In this exclusive listener offer, get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off from the publishers at Bigger Pockets. To get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off any format, go to www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. That's 50% off any format, www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. How do you want to exist and lead in this time period? Because we're in a time of incredible stresses uh, on the american system on the press some of it deserved because of things that the press has gotten wrong over the years and some of it probably just ulterior motives of people that want to tear this down uh so that's a lot of testing to try to navigate and then not be in your own head so much that you forget to do the core job which i know you care about because i've worked with you which is trying to tell stories right Welcome to On Brand with Donnie Deutsch. I am Donnie Deutsch, and this is a podcast. This is an epic podcast. This is a podcast that, that moves and shakes society because what we do here is we do it where no other podcast goes. We uh, kind of look at the whole world uh, as a brand, and we kind of got built on a simple premise that everybody, every person, every celebrity, every product, every company is a brand. And uh, as such, we analyze uh, which brands are up, which brands are down, uh, who's going which way, who's who's moving the zeitgeist. And we also interview a iconic personal brand. Today, it's Ari Melber, uh, who, is, of course, is the host of The Beat on MSNBC every night at 6 o'clock. And he's uh, MSNBC's chief legal analyst, a brilliant guy. He's got a lot to say. There's obviously so many legal issues going on right now. We're going to talk to him about it. But first, let's get to our brands of the week. First brand of the week is... Um, the Trump family, brand down. He, here's what you need to know about these these prizes. Uh, in, in addition to the fact that it came out that, that Trump had COVID when he was on stage with um, Biden in the uh, first debate, which is kind of frightening in and of itself. His family, his kids and Melania were the only ones sitting there in the audience without masks. They knew he had COVID. They knew he could have been contagious. And they're sitting in a big closed environment without masks on. I mean, just... Just slime. I mean, it's just it's, you know. Once again, in the in the annals of uh, Trump stuff that done, this is you know seems almost quaint. But just you know, looking back now and seeing their smug little faces sitting there, although they were told by everybody in the in the uh, arena to have a mask on, they they had been exposed to their father who had COVID. He was wearing without without a mask, obviously, because he was debating, and they were too. So there you go, Mitch McConnell, uh, brand down from Mitch McConnell. Uh, He's announced no legislative agenda for 2022 midterms. Basically, what he's saying is, look, we're just going to run on nothing. We're going to run on grievance. We're going to run against the Democrats and say they suck and they're doing nothing and we're standing in the way. We're not going to put a policy forward. So our policy, our platform is zero, is nothing. That's what we are for you, American people. We're not, we're not telling you one thing we're going to do for you. All we're going to do is tell you, uh, watch out for the woke people, scare you, uh, 
tell you Biden, uh, you know, doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, the Democrats suck. It's just it scare you. Uh, talk about uh, that, that they're bur you know burning books in schools. Whatever they're going to do, whatever cultural thing that they're going to do to scare and frighten, and the, the American people put up with it. That's it. So I'm. So if you vote for Republican, you're voting for nothing. You're voting for somebody who's coming to the table and go. I have no ideas. This is my. This is what I come to you with. Here's what I have for American people. Here's what I'm going to do about jobs. Nothing. Here's what I'm going to do about the economy. Nothing. Here's what I'm going to do about healthcare. Nothing. Here's what I'm going to do about COVID. Nothing. That is their. That is their platform for the twenty. And the sad part is, the 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 Republicans will take back the House and. Uh, another prize, another brand up for one of my favorite people, brand up, I say facetiously, a big brand down. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis proposes a Florida civilian military force that he would control. Governor Ron DeSantis last Thursday proposed reestablishing the Florida State Guard, a civilian military force initially created during World War II that would be on his command. DeSantis said the civilian force would be in, not encumbered by federal government. So he would have his own military. So Ron DeSantis, Mr. Ron DeSantis, who, who doesn't want to have make kids in school wear masks, thinks that's un-American to protect children, wants his own military. That would really be healthy. That would work out well. It includes three and a half million that would be used to train and equip civilians. Uh, the force would be comprised of 200 volunteer members. I don't know. Something tells me not a winning formula in this day and age, giving Ron DeSantis his own little militia. Jesus Christ. Brand up for Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald. Of course, now uh, everybody sadly knows about the shootings in, in Michigan, the school shootings, four kids. Uh, uh, massacred uh, and could have been avoided. The, par the, the parents were called from the school. Uh, the parents were about drawings he was making and various things. The signs were there. It was, they, and then the parents were called in. First, they didn't even respond to an email and, and, they, and they basically said to the kid, the kid's response is don't get caught next time. And a few hours later, the kid, there was a massacre. So guess what? She's holding them criminally responsible. Yay, amen. Let's start to hold the parents accountable. I'm not saying parents who just allow their kids to have, you know, guns. I mean, you know, guns are legal in this country at a certain age, but um, who, who see signs and don't act responsibly. By the way, it's no different than if you see your kid driving drunk and get, here's the keys, go, go, go. And by the way, make sure you go up to 80. You should be as responsible as the kid that's driving. So I salute Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald and hopefully this will be a precedent for more. It's not the first time it's happened, but hopefully this will uh, open up a lot of uh, uh, beginnings to make us a little bit safer. Brand down for Joe Biden, whether it's fair or not. This is amazing. According, this is Dana Milbank, Washington Post, that uh, the media has been treating Biden as badly or worse than Trump. And here's proof. Artificial intelligence can now measure the negativity of news coverage for politicians with precision. Uh, Forge AI data analytics uses information company Fiscal Note combed through more than 200,000 articles, tens of millions of words from 65 news websites, newspapers, network cable news publications, whatever to do a sentiment analysis of coverage for Joe Biden and Donald Trump. It uses algorithms that gives weight to certain adjectives based on their placement in the story. It rated coverage Biden received in the first 11 months of 2021, and the coverage got in the first 11 months of 2020 uh, versus uh, Trump. And it seems as if Biden has even gotten worse coverage. You know, So I don't want to hear about this liberal bias of the media anymore. Uh, the coverage for Trump received for the same four months in 2020 versus um 2021, uh, it seems as if uh, there was a, a, a bit of a slant down for Biden. 
another breakdown for Biden. His approval rating has slid below 50% with young Americans. This is a concerning thing for Republicans, I mean, for Democrats. Biden's approval rating is below 50% with young Americans, according to a new Harvard Youth Poll. Between the eight, Republicans found that only 40% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 29 approve of Biden's job as president. That's that's a problem. When you've got less than half of America, Americans 18 and 29 approving of a Democrat, that's a problem. It's a 13% drop from the last time. And there you go. Uh, TV news networks, brand down. Viewership decline continues across all news networks. These are some stunning numbers. Comparing November of last year and this year, and of course, November last year, there was an election, so we have to put that in there. But MSNBC viewers are down 59%. CNN was down 77%. Fox News was down 49%. Um, these are chunk, you know, you're losing half your viewers, two thirds of your viewers, three quarters of your viewers. Um, and in the demo, uh, CNN is off by 84% and MSNBC is down by 74%. Those are big numbers. And those are not just election year versus non-election year numbers. Uh, this will, this is just a trend that will continue. Obviously we're in this new cycle. You know, we were in a once a generation news cycle and the, the ratings were obviously inflated, but these are particularly, uh, deflated. Big brand down for Chris Cuomo. As you know, now he's been, uh, first he was suspended um, by CNN indefinitely based on, uh, not necessarily he, aid he was giving his brother and his brothers uh, trying to fight his uh, being thrown out of office. And what seems that Chris Cuomo was doing was being using his journalistic uh, pulpit with contacts he had to try and get maybe some dirt on some of the women that were accusing Cuomo. And now since this further investigation has come out, uh, it seems as if there are some sexual harassment things that go back to his days at ABC. But whatever it is, uh, CNN said they had enough. And and it, all the facts have not come out, but it's not, it, it's gonna be pretty harsh because I know Jeff Zucker is the kind of CEO that he he likes to stick by his, his talent. He's known for that. It's why he's such a popular executive. He doesn't like to be told what to do by the, by the, 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 you know, the, the choir, if you will. Uh, and I knew, I know just personally, he was ready to really stick by him. So something changed dramatically and for them to just, just write boom oh, on a Saturday, let him go. And we're going to be following that story. Disgusting brand down for Lara Logan. Um, she on a uh, Fox news, this is Lara Logan. who used to be on, on 60 minutes compared, uh, this is a really nice one. Compared Anthony Fauci to Nazi Dr. Joseph Mengele. Mengele. Um, her comments came during a segment in which Fox host Pete, uh, somebody a frequent critic of coronavirus mandates, accused Biden of, of overhyping uh, the variant. And uh, Logan's response is, what you see on Dr. Fauci, well, this is what people said to me, that he didn't represent science to them. He represents Joseph Mengele. Um, now, Joseph Mengele was, was one of... Uh, you can't say a heinous Nazi because I don't think there's anything anything but a heinous Nazi. But he was a doctor that would just do experiments on on babies, kill them, just to treat, literally treated Jewish babies and people like we don't treat lab animals in some of the, in some of the protocols that we do as far as in experiments, and and was responsible for the for the deaths of many in a in a disgustingly laboratory driven way, and to compare him. Uh, to Dr. Fauci is disgusting. In fact, if she's still on the air for another minute, I don't understand that. So here you go. Uh, moving to a little bit lighter, our uh, brand up for RV living, the rise of recreational vi um, vehicle living, RVs. Um, as of March 2020, 11 million households owned RVs. That's up to 26% since 2011. 
What's even more striking that 9.6 million initial households say they were considering buying an RV in the next five years. The reason, wanting to spend more time outside to take advantage of teleworking policies and to travel safely despite pandemic risk. So the combination of the pandemic, both people not wanting to be in the office and also no allowed to work out of anywhere, people are going, you know, hey, screw just working out of my home. Let me get an RV and see the world as I work. So um, RVs is one of the businesses that is, or one of the categories that has been thriving because of the pandemic. Brand up for the Cincinnati Bearcats. Cincinnati in the college football playoff, you know, if you follow college football, it's basically always one of the top conferences, the, the Power Five, the ACC, Big Ten, Big 12, Pac-10, SEC, always every year has the four teams in the college playoffs. And the smaller group of five, which is the American Athletic Conference, Conference USA, the MAC, the Mountain West, and Sunbelt, finally one team from their conference, Cincinnati, which has had an undefeated season, they're 13-0, and 0, uh, they'll be playing in the playoffs. So again, the other three teams are teams that you would more likely see in the playoffs. Of course, Alabama, which is there pretty much every year, Georgia, Three out of four years is usually in there. And Michigan, which hasn't been in there for a while, but certainly is a, from a powerhouse conference and a powerhouse program. Major League Baseball, brand down. Lockout. The lockout is coming. And, and you know, obviously it's over, it's over um, labor issues, and as it always is. The last one was five years ago. But something to watch in baseball is that in the 2020 World Series, which involved the brand name Los Angeles Dodgers, game one was the lowest rated World Series game in history. That's with the Los Angeles team playing. One Major League Baseball executive said, we're on our way to become a hockey. And one of the reasons is Major League hitters collectively produced a 244 batting average uh, last year. That's the last time it was that low was 1972. Look, just like in football, people want to see touchdowns. People want to see home runs. I'm not saying we should, we should juice players again and people should be doing steroids. But the game, a lot of the games are over three and a half hours. Um, you don't have enough marquee teams anymore. Uh, some of the best players play on teams never win playoffs like Mike Trout. Uh, you have some very small market teams like the Devil Rays who who, who are kind of, uh, you know, in, in winning mode. And, you know, you, you Yankees have not made hayway in 10 years. Yes, the Red Sox have had a good run, but uh, don't have the right amount of marquee players. And you think about basketball and you think about the stars in basketball and there's not enough of a star system in baseball. Uh, I remember watching the baseball all-star game last year and I'm a sports fan. And I remember always growing up, the all-star game was, oh my God, you'd see every guy was epic and two thirds of the guys I never heard of. So baseball's got some problem. Here's a weird one, brand up because it, they got an award, but I just kind of want to ask a question for Dolly Parton, Simone Biles and Sandra O oh, and Nation's Teachers. People Magazine is named country icon Dolly Parton, Olympic gymnast Simon, Simone, Simone Biles and actress Sandra O oh, and Nation's Teachers as its people of the year. I get the nation's teachers. And by the way, Simone Biles, great story and has moved, moved the discussion on, on mental, um, mental issues forward, mental illness issues forward. And, uh, and Sandra Oh has, has, has been doing a lot of fighting anti-Asian hate, uh, anti-Asian hate. Uh, Dolly Parton uh, was cited for giving away millions of books and supporting COVID research. But I don't know. I just find that so bizarre when people are going to give their people of the year. Simone Biles, Sandra Oh, and Dolly Parton and Nation's Teachers. I don't know, weird. So it's certainly a brand up because it's a nice credit and these are all wonderful people doing wonderful things. But I don't know. I'm just, it's, it's just strange, uh, strange grouping for lack of a better word. Brand up for Gail Godot, Dwayne Johnson, Ryan Reynolds. Um, they are in the what has become Netflix's most watched film of all time. Red Notice, um, it's basically the record holder already. 
It's had 282 million hours. It's had 328 million hours, which beat the bird box of 282 million hours. Uh, it's It's been one of the top 10 films streaming on Netflix in 94 countries. There's a new movie coming out. I actually just saw the premiere that is going to be up there also. It's called Don't Look Up. It's with Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence and Jonah Hill. Spectacular. Uh, directed by Adam McKay. And it has tremendous relevance for today's time. I'm drifting a little bit. And the premise is there's a comet that's coming to destroy the earth. And a couple of scientists find out. And for both political and commercial reasons, the, the White House and society doesn't want to recognize a lot to do. Big relevance to corona and corona, the, the coronavirus. And yet it was put in the works long before that. So interesting. Brand up for another movie that's coming out, West Side Story. Uh, it's being called a masterpiece. It got 95% of Rotten Tomatoes, Steven Spielberg. And it just shows that age is not an issue. I mean, the the the, the word on this is they keep using masterpiece and you, you don't see that a lot with movies. And um, what's nice about it is Rita Moreno at 90. Obviously she was in the original one 60 years ago. She has one of the lead songs and they're, they're, there's already an Oscar buzz. But a lot of times they don't get... Uh, Broadway musicals right on TV, uh, on, in movies. Where Cats is an example of that. Uh, in in the uh, in the woods, uh, some obviously have been great. Chicago, uh, but this is supposed to be this is coming out around Christmas. This is supposed to be just a, a a movie for the ages, and it has what they've done. It takes on a lot of today's issues, you know, but within the original framework. Uh, so can't wait to see it. Obviously, he's done E.T. Schindler's List, Saving Private Rising quote. Think about this. E.T., Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, Close Encounters, Jaws. I think they forgot Jurassic Park. <laughs> Just incredible. Uh, Steven Spielberg. Movie theaters, brand down. Uh, vaccination rates are going up and people are going out of restaurants, but they're not going to the movies. Some 49% of pre-pandemic moviegoers are no longer hitting theaters, according to a study. And that's because what I just talked about. Look, you now have, you know, major releases coming out on streaming. And, you know, I think kind of anybody above the age of 15 and 16, it, it's going to be really hard to get them to movies. I, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm going back into a movie theater because I don't, there's, why? Why? It'd be the same reason. Why am I going to uh, watch a TV show in the movies if I can see it on television? And it's so, I'm you know, I think this is going to just continue to go downhill for movie theaters. So I'd be shorting some, those people that were buying AMC stock, I'm not quite sure what they were thinking. Brand down for mall Santas. Um, there are more mall Santas this year than 2020, but fewer than years past. 10% um, fewer Santas this year. The demand is up over 120%. There are currently 1,275 job openings for mall Santas. So got nothing to do. You want to make a few extra bucks and and be do some cute things and 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 promise gifts to kids. There's a lot of jobs from mall Santas. Uh, Toys R Us is coming back, returning again. Obviously, they went bankrupt, but they're coming back this time with a two-story slide and ice cream and very experiential. They're going to be in, in the big mall in New Jersey. What's it called? The American Dream Mall. And it just shows that stores need to be experiential today. Um, so they're coming back with rides and ice cream and things you can't buy. Obviously, you can buy toys online. So you're going to have to give people more than just toys if you can open a toy store again. So we'll see what happens there. A brand up from Machine Gun Kelly just launched his beauty brand. Uh, this seems to be obviously a tremendous trend. Um, it's His name is actually Colson Baker. I like Machine Gun Kelly. What a cool name, Machine Gun Kelly. I want to change my name to Machine Gun. Uh, actually, no. Wrong Guns 
bad. Would never do that. I would, I'm just cutting off right now. That was a dumb thing to say. Um, it's his first foray into the beauty world. Um, it's called UNDN Lacquer, L-A-Q-R. is a full line of genderless punk nail polishes, all designed to stand out from the crowd in the chicest possible way. So you might see me wearing some chic nail polish. And finally, brand up to Burger King. Burger King is turning 60. I'm, I'm sorry, the Whopper. Burger King's Whopper brand up. The Whopper is turning 60 and it's returning to its original price for two years. Um, Burger King's it's turning 64 years old, not 60. I don't know why they're doing this, but okay. Um, they're giving it a price to match. For two days, it's going to be 37 cents in what's called the two-day birthday bash. Burger King first started selling the Whopper in 1957, and those are our brands of the week. Let's now get to our big interview with Ari Melber. Ari's got a lot to say, and I think you're going to really enjoy it. Okay, I want to talk to you about GiveWell. This is really important. When you give to charity, how much impact will your donation actually have? The question could be hard, if not impossible, to know. Most charities can't tell you how your money will be used or how much good it will accomplish. You know, you may know theoretically it'll help a cause, but how? More importantly, how much? If you want to help people living in poverty with evidence-backed, high-impact charities, I recommend you check out GiveWell. GiveWell spends over 20,000 hours each year researching charitable organizations and only recommends a few of the highest impact evidence-backed charities they've found. So this is an instance where you want every one of your dollars working as hard as possible. You go to GiveWell and they really help you. Over 50,000 donors have used GiveWell to donate more than $750 million. Rigorous evidence suggests that these donations will save tens of thousands of lives and improve the lives of millions more. And here's the best part. GiveWell is free. GiveWell wants to empower as many donors as possible to make informed decisions about their donations. They publish all of their research and recommendations on their site for free, no sign-up required. They allocate your tax-deductible donation to the charity you choose without taking a cut. I'm telling you, this is, if you're going to give any money to charity, go to GiveWell. Really, really check this out. If you've never donated to GiveWell's recommended charities before, you can have your donation matched up to $250 before the end of the year, as long as your matching funds last. To claim your match, go to GiveWell.org and pick podcast and enter On Brand with Donnie Deutsch at checkout. Make sure they know that you heard about GiveWell from On Brand with Donnie Deutsch to get your donation matched. GiveWell. I want to talk to you about LinkedIn marketing. Let's pretend for a moment that you're about to launch a campaign. It tested well. Your entire team's happy. Everything is going according to plan, except for the one thought in the back of your head. How do I ensure the people I want to target will be in the mindset to receive my message? The answer is LinkedIn. Because when you market on LinkedIn, your message reaches people who are ready to engage with your business. And that means your advertising campaign will work as hard as it can as soon as you launch it. Over 62 million decision makers are on LinkedIn and they're thinking about their business. It's one of the many reasons more than, this is incredible, more than 78% of business-to-business marketers rate LinkedIn as the most effective social media platform helping their organization achieve specific objectives. LinkedIn can help you reach your short and long-term business goals. They offer tools for brand building and lead generation. You can target and reach your professional audience down to their job title, company name, and location. This is the targeting thing you want to use. You can engage people you already know based on who's visited your site or who you've contacted in the past. You can even customize your campaign based on the action you want your customers to take and objectives you want to achieve. Advertising on LinkedIn, the world's largest professional network, can help you reach your marketing goals. If you're looking to target the right way, LinkedIn is the way to do it. Do business where business is done. Get a $100 advertising credit towards your first LinkedIn campaign. Visit linkedin.com slash Donnie. LinkedIn.com slash Donnie. Terms and conditions apply. I am thrilled that today's guest, he's a friend of mine. He is, uh, of course, the host of The Beat, the 6 o'clock hit show 
Actually, the longest-running 6 o'clock show in the history of MSNBC, we, we, there was a, a milestone there. He's MSNBC's chief legal correspondent. Um, he is a man that brings together politics, law, and hip-hop. Um, he's an important journalist, and uh, I'm thrilled to have him on the show today. Thanks for being here, my friend. Happy to be here. Good to see you. So, we're, you know, we're doing this at 3 in the afternoon. You, your show is on at 6, obviously. And I said, talk, tell me about making the sausage today. What's been, what leads up to 6? Where are we at 3? How does, it, how, does it, how does the sausage get made? Uh, we have two lanes for what goes on air. One is all of the daily news we're keeping up with, like we're tracking jury deliberations in the Rittenhouse trial. And if that evolves or there's news on that, it gets added to the rundown. We have a morning call that looks at the day's stories and where would we go. And the way on the beat, the way we do it is that's one lane and we keep a big eye on that like you'd imagine any newsroom. Sure. The other thing we do, which in guest hosting and being around the business, as you have as well, I don't know how much every show does or doesn't do this, depending on the channel. We have a whole other lane that's our long-term stuff. For example, yeah. just to be specific, I'm taping a long interview, not unlike maybe what this will be, in-depth with Eric Schmidt, the former Google CEO. Right. That's not for the night of. Right. And I'm working on a, a civil rights report. It's not for tonight. Yeah. And we're writing and researching, producing those things. And that's that other lane. And some days it's 100% breaking news or news sure. day, whatever you want to call it. And some days it's it could be 50-50. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm, I want to go a little bit back uh, to your childhood. You grew up in Seattle. Uh, I didn't realize your grandparents are Holocaust survivors. Well, so my family, it's funny you go right to that. Uh, you know, in the journalism business, we don't always talk about ourselves in depth. Right. Even though it's like people feel like they know us, but yes, it's it's the case that my on my father's side, uh, they fled Germany. So some of the family was was murdered and wiped out there. Uh, basically, my grandmother Lisa Melber, who lived till a hundred, her siblings murdered, and then other uh, other family members, Lisa and her husband Norbert, they they fled, made it to. Jerusalem before the state of Israel was created and then made it to America. So I've seen it described online a number of ways, but basically some people were murdered, some people fled. It's definitely a part of my family history. Yeah. And how'd you guys end up settling in Seattle? Uh, no one's ever asked me that, Donnie, in public. <laughs> this, is the in, <laughs> I mean, I this is the in-depth interview. This is, this is where all, all the questions will be answered. I was going to say, at a dinner party, maybe I've never discussed this uh, on air or MSBC, but the, the answer is that my father was serving in what was called the Indian Health Service uh, as a doctor on a Native American reservation, the Lummi Reservation. And so my parents, because of that assignment, went to Bellingham, Washington for what, you know how life is. Sure. They're young, young newlyweds for what they thought was this medical assignment. They both fell in love with the Northwest. Neither of them have any connection there. I mean, they're from uh, Michigan, raised, as I said, my father, Jerusalem, then Illinois, my mom, Detroit, Michigan. So they were Midwestern at that point. They loved it. They stayed. You don't, I, I was surprised in doing a little research because I would have guessed you were an East Coast guy. I would have guessed you grew up somewhere in New York. You have that vibe, <laughs> that, that grit about you. You, do, you don't feel Seattle. You feel more Carroll Gardens where you live right now in Brooklyn. So I, that's just, did you, did you kind of stand out growing up out there? A little grittier, a little streetier? You know, it's really hard to be objective about yourself. So I guess the short answer is, I don't know. I do think that Seattle is super chill. For the most part, the reputation is deserved. Like it does rain a lot out of the year. Right. There are a lot of coffee shops, and there are a lot of what we used to call unreconstructed hippies. Right. Uh, and so the vibe, no, like the vibe. You're absolutely right, Donnie. Is like I always tell like this: if you go to a coffee shop, like an old school coffee shop in Seattle, not not Tully's, 
and you try to just order the coffee, that will be considered a little rude. Like you're not on the vibe. Right. Because what you're supposed to do is be like, what's going on? And the barista be like, nothing, man. What's going on with you? And you'll be like, <laughs> no, nah, I'm chilling. And then if you were like, could I get a, a latte? They'll be like, I didn't know you were in a rush. Because really, you're supposed to go back and forth a couple of times. Man, wow. man, how about this weather? Yeah, I went to I went to Man Made for Seattle. Definitely would not have been my kind yeah. of, my my vibe. So, so to your to your point, I definitely was faster then. Always been at that speed. But I love nature. I love music. I, I love getting off the grid, offline, all that. And I think I get that still from my my Northwest upbringing. And your early uh, forays into performing and law, you did kind of you did a mock trial yourself in like third grade where you, 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 you had a whole thing and it was, you were trying Exxon Valdez. Hey, I did my homework here, man. We're going to, we're going to, we're going there. Right. I want, I want to go back to a, a nine-year-old Ari Melber trying yeah. the Exxon Valdez case. So I, when I hear it now, it sounds preposterous. Almost like if you've ever seen that Wes Anderson movie, Rushmore, sure, where the course. kid is trying to do too much, right. as they say, that's kind of what I think when I see that, if I saw a kid doing that today, but at the time, I didn't know one way or the other. Uh, there was a talent show that was just different kids doing talent competition, like playing the flute. And I got it in my head, oh, well, if there's a talent show, maybe I should just produce a whole play and embed it in the show. You know, this is how we call like riding somebody's platform, sure. Donnie. I was like, let's go. So I wrote with my mom, I guess it was in third grade, but I was very interested in, in what was happening in the world, social justice, environment, whatever. And the Exxon spill was a big deal at the time. It must have been, I guess. And because I knew about it, and I was a kid. So we wrote this whole play. Like I told my mom what I wanted to be and she helped me craft it. And so we wrote it together, but it had a whole narrative. Uh, and I cast myself, no humility at nine, I guess, or 10 or whatever, as the prosecutor. And right. I wrote the play. So Donnie, I got to write the ending where yeah. I want. Oh, there you go. Well, by the way, if, I always say, if nobody's going to back you, but you, you see, it's got to start with yourself. By the way, just so to put in perspective of, of third grade hijinks, I'll compare your story is not even close to Willie Geis. And we broke this uh, on the show. Willie in third grade, he was, he was into sports, but his mother wanted him to experiment with the arts. So she made him go into a summer theater, a production of Annie, where he was the only boy in Annie. And I think he had a, he had a I don't know what he played, but that was, so there you go. So we, we all have our humble beginnings. There, there you go. There's the really guy. Sir. So, I, will, I will say this on that point, because you mentioned Willie and myself. It is a great thing when kids, I have two nieces, you know, when kids can see that there's more than one way they're allowed to be. Yeah. Because it's, it's, how are you and your family? How are you in your peer group? theater or other things that allow them to say, you know, that imagination that sometimes over life we drill out of people. I do think that's positive. So for me, it's like, I don't know what I was doing with the play, but I clearly developed a sense at a young age that there's more than one way I can be. Yeah. I could be the serious guy. I could be the fun guy. I could share some of myself. And so I do think that that, that kind of stuff's valuable, you know, for kids. Amen. Amen. El condado de Santa Clara está pasando por una emergencia de sequía extrema. Valley Water le pide a la comunidad que limite el riego de jardines a un máximo de dos veces por semana. Trabajemos juntos y digámosle sí, ahorrar agua. Visite watersavings.org para más información. So you go to University of Michigan, you come out and you, you go to work. I think I have this right. You go to work on the Kerry campaign. I worked first for Senator Maria Cantwell on okay. the Hill and then for Senator Kerry, correct, is the second thing I did on, on the campaign trail. A year, a year, seven days a week around the country. And what were you actually doing for Kerry? I started as an Iowa caucus organizer. So I was assigned 19 precincts in Des Moines where I had to recruit support, which at the time was a relatively difficult for John Kerry, if we're being objective. Yeah. Uh, recruit precinct captains, 
build a, a field strategy. I did that for several months. And then as campaigns go on, it's sink or swim. I mean, I remember the day after the Iowa caucus, they just ended a lot of people's employment. Yeah. They didn't think we're cutting it. And then other people, they reassigned. And I got sent out. And I ultimately worked in D.C. headquarters in Washington State, where I was from. So that was fun. And in uh, Ohio at the end. Right. And you do that for and a while. And in L.A. And then you, you go back and you go to law school. You go to Cornell. You start your practice in a private law firm. And how did the TV gig start? How did that happen? Because it happened relatively early, not early, early in your legal career. Gradually. I mean, yeah. What happened for me was I started doing TV interviews before I even entered law school because I was writing freelance. So right. I was writing for Nation Magazine and a little thing at the time called Huffington Post that had just launched. Nobody knew what it was. Well, it ended up being something, but like I was writing for free there. And then you do sometimes radio or TV off that because, you know, I mean, I think you you know, Donnie, and I bet a lot of your listeners who, who are into this know people pop up. It's like you didn't know about this person and then they they leave government or they write something and then they get interviewed more and more. But typically that's just interesting, but unpaid yeah. side work. I was doing that in law school and as a lawyer, and then it snowballed from there. Interesting. The way I got into TV, when I ran my ad agency for years, I tended to be the guy that was always interviewed about advertising. You know, like I was the, I was in everybody's Rolodex as the ad guy. And every time I do an interview, the producers would always say to me, wow, you're really good at this. You should do television one day. And I, I used to get high on it. So when after I saw my company, I said, why not? So that is the way very, a lot of people stumble into, into yeah. the media. You, you, and at MSNBC, you, you had a bunch of gigs. You were in the cycle. We don't, where's the last time anybody asked you about the cycle? Literally never. I bet, <laughs> I bet it's not, it's just the truth. Like I bet your listeners don't know what that is right now. No, by the way, MSNBC, which is kind of very built in granite. Now people know what it was. There was a lot of juking and jiving. I mean, it was a 3 PM show. It was a panel show. Uh, who else was on? It was you, it was, was it Torre who was on it? And uh, It launched with Torre, Crystal Ball, S.E. Cup, oh, wow. and uh, Steve Kornacki. Okay, wow, and that's Korn a very illustrious group. Then Kornacki was tapped to go take Chris Hayes' weekend spot. Okay. Because Chris Hayes moved into the evening. Right. And that left, as I put it, a sweater to fill. And they put me in there. Uh, Abby Huntsman ultimately also came in when S.E. Cup wow. uh, went to a different channel. And... That was the sort of the, the panel for a while. Do you know, I had a very short-lived 3 p.m. show years before. Phil Griffin at the time was running, had an idea to put me on at 3 o'clock. And uh, this is before MSNBC really, I mean, Oberman was on it at 8, but there, were, there really wasn't this kind of bastion of, of uh, let's call it a, pro a progressive platform. And I did, a my, the second day, I did a segment on um, hate, hate in the media. And the producer, I'm not blaming the producer, the producer's arm in the package in the upfront tease, he had Bill O'Reilly and he put Oberman in there. And like Oberman was in there as part of the <laughs> Oberman went into Phil's office. Get this fucking guy off the air. Wow. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Great, great, great little background <laughs> story about three o'clock. But you um you eventually you get a weekend show and then you start filling in. And tell me how you got tapped at six o'clock because that's that's a big gig and there's a big difference when all of a sudden you go from filling in and whatnot to kind of having your own piece of real estate. So take me through how that happened. Yeah, I mean, well, the cycle ultimately ended and I stayed on in in the company as chief legal correspondent, but without a home base. And I think people who watch the news know, you know, there's the folks who have the shows and then there's the folks who are jumping around. Right. So I went from being a part of a show, not a solo host, but part of a show as a co-host to being a legal reporter and doing my work and running around and then filling in for people. And I'd been filling in basically for years. And that was the situation. It wasn't, you know, 
things look different in the rear view sometimes, but it wasn't like I, if there was a master plan for me, no one told me. Yeah. Uh, so I was doing that work in 2017. They were adding hours. So again, it's not, sometimes people look at this and if anyone's listening, cause they want to get, you know, I'm sure you have some young people who want sure. to about their own careers. You've, you've had a, a very successful career, Johnny, by being visionary and taking risks and doing things in more than one industry. Right. I have been able to work in more than one industry. All I can tell folks is there was no master plan. And when I did get the weekend Sunday show, you're calling that you're referring to the point. And as far as I know, it was not because someone out there said, it's time to hear more Ari. That didn't happen. Right. Uh, there wasn't some, you know, movement demanding that. There was a news cycle with a newly elected, untraditional president, Donald Trump, that expanded the amount of time the news was breaking and they didn't want to be in tape Sunday night. Yeah. So they had to put someone in there, but they got most people who are working Monday, Friday schedules. And they came to me and said, uh, we'd like you to pick up these two hours. There's a lot of legal news. So you're still going to be on a Monday, Friday, but we'll try to get you a break or a rest where you, where you can, but, but we want you to do this. Can you do it? So that was at this point in my career, having done everything we just discussed, got a law degree, work hard, there's journalism. Now do you want to take on a six day week? And what do you say if you get a chance like that? Uh, sure. You say, yeah. Yeah. So jumped into that. And that was the, the change for me from being a guest host where I don't know if people think about it or care, but being guest host is super challenging. You want to respect the platform that you're yeah. in. It's not yours. You want to, yeah, be quote unquote, be yourself, but also don't really be too much of yourself. Cause this, if I'm filling in for Rachel, my whole job is to try to return the Just hour exactly. back to her. And yeah. it's, it never rates as good when I'm in. It's never as interesting. The online comments are always, where is she? Right. As they should be. Sure. So that's a different energy than Sunday night. I finally got to try being a little more myself with my own lane, work with a great team there, Mike McLaughlin and other people. And within a few months after that, the person you mentioned, Phil, came in and said, actually, I want, I want to put you in at six every night, which is a much bigger haul than sure. once a week. Yeah. yeah. That's right. So that happened pretty quick. So you didn't even have the weekend show that long. So you got six o'clock and like, boom, that was, that, that was, that was a big deal. I remember that happening. I remember they announced that. And it was like, well, they wow. launched and you, you get this from being around the biz. When they started, they said it was just going to be for first hundred days. Right. It wasn't a permanent job offer. That's why they said, cause I don't know long-term if they expect people to go six, seven days forever. They said, well, it's six days for a, for a hundred days. Right. You know, I'm just turning this off. So, eh, you know what I mean? Um, uh, and then, yeah, but then they went longer than a hundred. And then, as I said, then they tapped me for, uh, for six. It's a big responsibility in this day and age, more than ever, uh, having an hour of, of lies, new live news and information where you can kind of mold it. I don't say any way you want, as you said, you, you know, you, everybody's working off the day and date, but you know, you are, if you really think about it, there's, there's three places and particularly for, a, a little bit of a lefted slant on the news. There's one place and there's X amount of hours. So, you know, you kind of really are, it's not like 20 years ago where you're getting up there and you're reading a prompter and you're, you know, and guys are doing standups. You, you're really lensing. Uh, and there's a big responsibility that comes with that. Yeah. I mean, I think about that because a lot of what is tested in these kind of jobs is what you don't do, which no one will see and you don't get credit. Interesting. For. Interesting. What story do you not jump on because either it's it's not ready, it's not sourced right, even if technically you could get away with pinning it on someone else? Um, what tweet do you not make a big deal out of, even though it might rate, but you actually have some standard beyond? Yes, mm -hmm. we all want an audience. I think that's part of doing a broadcast. It's not for an empty room, but you know what? We're going to sacrifice something that 
documented, you could see in the data would have rated or does rate or other shows that did that night because you're not going to do it, you know, yeah. or CNN's going big on it and respect to them. But you look at it and go, we have reasons why we're not doing that. So that number one, I think is a thing. And you, you just, you have to do that because you and your team figure out that you think it's the right call. Uh, and there's no public reward for that because by definition, it's about what you didn't do. Then second, you have to figure out how do you want to exist and lead in this time period? Because we're in a time of incredible stresses uh, on the American system, on the press. Some of it deserved because of things that the press has gotten wrong over the years. And some of it probably just ulterior motives of people that want sure. to tear this down. Uh, so that's a lot of testing to try to navigate and then not be in your own head so much that you forget to do the core job, which I know you care about because I've worked with you, which is trying to tell stories right. Yeah. That involves humanity and credibility and not overthinking everything because you're in your own life and world. And what are people going to say? But just tell, tell the damn story. Yeah. I, I, Trump re obviously really changed the game. I, I know when, and just as somebody that, and I, I didn't have my own show. I'm a guy that pops up all over the place, including your show. Actually, I had a show for a little bit on Saturday night. Um, I always feel when I'm on the air that during the Trump presidency, just as a as a father, as a person, that I don't know if this is going to come out right, that I had a responsibility, that I, I really felt our democracy was in play. And I felt that this man, I, and long before just about anybody was saying it, I was, one of the reasons I lost my Saturday show, I was making Hitler references, not to say that he was going to cause a Holocaust, but it was the same playbook. We have an authoritarian, I said he would not leave office, all the things that came, I know this guy. And I felt an obligation, I don't know if this makes me not part of the news world, to do everything I could to move this guy out of office. That if, if, if I moved one vote, now that's, I probably shouldn't be on the air if that's what I'm doing, but I, I, I'm, I'm doing this little preamble to get to you is, you can't not be a human being. Yes, you're doing your job and you're trying to tell the story honestly. But there was something bigger at play. You couldn't have blood going through your veins and be what I call one of the good guys to not feel an obligation to do, shine as shiny a light as what was happening. And, and that, that how did you, how do you, as a long-winded way, how do you navigate that? How do you navigate, I know there's something going on here that it is really wrong and really bad. And I know, and I know also though, I got to play it down the middle, but there's a little voice, an angel voice inside of me saying, there's bigger fish to fry here. Yeah, it's a great, tough question, Donnie, that I think is larger than even the current era we're in, because I think you could think about tests in American history of, of civil rights or people who were very worried about the Cold War and mutually assured destruction. And you, you could think of these tests, whether they're the existential threat yes. to the democracy or the existential threat to the society, or what does it mean to, quote unquote, be fair to all sides when one side is doing anti-black murderous terrorism. Yeah. I mean, there are many examples where you go, okay. And I think that where I've landed, and there's more than one way to do it, and we're in a rich time with more voices that has pros and cons, but one of the pros is there's a whole new generation coming up, and they're going to do it different than you or I might, and we're going to yeah. learn from them too. But the way I've landed is I'm not here to try to tell you what to think or engineer an outcome, but some calls are clearer than others, factually and morally. And I will, I will try to do my level best to be honest with the public. So I won't fake a middle ground that doesn't exist. Yeah. Of course, there aren't, by the way, there aren't two sides to every argument. There's, there's right. just if it's a hate yeah. rally. Yeah. If it's a hate rally. Yeah. Um, and I won't cherry pick some really obscure, non-credible countering opinion so that I can get to a 
a DC dinner party and claim that I'm always in the middle. Yeah. Uh, but I will go out of my way to have voices on the beat. We're very proud, to be honest, of people we've had on that aren't popular or that are a ratings hit. Sure. But I want to make sure if we're covering the trial, you're going to hear both sides. When you cover a trial, that means you hear someone's indicted for murder and we still hear their side or their sure. lawyer's side. And, and some people would go, I saw the video. I don't want to hear that side. That's fine. You have every right to feel that way. And I bet you the family feels that way. And that's human. Yeah. The journalist's obligation to me is different. So that's a partly you had a long-winded uh, question by your own estimation. This is my long-winded answer is I'm not injuring the outcome. And the most clear examples of that, I think, are separate from politics. When there's a terrible tornado and you're covering it, obviously it's a bad thing. There's not a second side to sure. it. Then people say, well, could the policy leaders have better prepared for it. And then you get into that convo is my job to say, well, I haven't figured out tonight. I know exactly how the tornado could have been better handled. Sure. Maybe not. No. So outside of politics, you know, with that now, when you end up with a threat to the government inside the government, who's literally saying and doing things to end democracy. Yes. One understandable outcome that anyone would take from that is, well, I guess if he lost, he's got to go. So you are talking about that outcome. And my answer is I am but I'm not trying to tell you what to think about it. Right. I'm going to show you the facts of why that is the agreed upon rule. <laughs> so yeah. yes, but, but no, I mean, I don't, and Donnie, I'm going to say this, like, obviously people like us, we talk a lot. So we, we must think we have something worthwhile to say, but I don't think the most important thing every night at 6 PM Eastern is what I think about what happened today. Well, course, I might sure. get to that sooner or later. Right. That's not the lead. No, you, one thing I love about your show and one issue I have with the network overall, you know, you do good on both sides. I mean, you, you ha you'll have a Jay Sekulow on who, by the way, was incredibly complimentary to you. And, and, you know, which, so that's nice when you have quote unquote, the other side on and you're, you yeah, know, he's a Trump lawyer, yeah. you know, he's a Trump lawyer. And I find the network, I find that Carvel's critique of the latest iteration of the democratic party is kind of this super wokeness and that costs them. I feel the network sometimes is a little too woke. I, I feel that there, you, you, I wish the network sometimes didn't go blindly down certain paths. And, and overall, I find that, that I wish the network moved a little bit more, a little bit more even balanced. Uh, I think that's what people want. And I think obviously we've, I don't know if research bears that out, but I think I, you, the network starts to play a version of itself and that's what it is. And I just wish there were more spots. I know Joe does it. I know Nicole does it. I know you do it. But there's a lot of places on the network that really just go all in. And I don't know if the, I don't know if that's the right thing for the viewer. I look, I think it's always a challenge in a newsroom to figure out, all right, what are the outer standards and who are we having on and how do different people decide what their different lines and voices are? Um, but I appreciate what you're saying. And, and I, uh, the truth is I'm more than busy with the beat, right? So I wouldn't even be a, a super informed to say, oh, well, I've monitored all the bookings on every sure, other hour sure. on CNN or the MSNBC. But, but yeah, we go out of our way to, to try to do that. And, and I do think that I will say this about the cultural moment we're in. There's some really terrible stuff going on. And there has been throughout our history, but there's some really terrible stuff. So it's understandable to me, again, at that kind of human or emotional level that people go, but with all that going on, I don't want to hear this. Oh, and this was an enabler of that. I don't want to hear that. Well, yeah. this didn't enable that, but this was friends with the enabler. I don't want to hear that. Well, you keep going that far and you know where you end up, Donnie. You yeah. end up not even being able to hear other views. And the other point I would I would mention on this, and I'm you know thinking about the level of censorship. Scientific method requires not only hearing things you disagree with, but testing things that you believe to be wrong. 
Let me give you a very specific example that I believe many people would now agree with, but was once controversial. The medical view in the DSM that categorizes illness, categorized liking people of the same gender, being gay, as a mental illness. That was the view. Yeah. So if you were pro-science in that era, or you were booking scientists or whatever medical opinion, that's what the expert view was in the textbook. If you wanted to hear the alternative, you had to be willing to listen to someone who not only had a very, un, at the time, unpopular view, and neither party was for that, or you go back to it. It was an unscientific view at the time, yeah. But it was also a quote-unquote unscientific view. Yeah. So if you, if we, that's easy to look at in hindsight. What are the versions of that today? I'm not saying I know, but I, here's what I do think. You need an informational and knowledge process that includes hearing things that you believe to be wrong so that you actually hear them, not their caricature. And some of those things will remain wrong. I could give you examples. And history teaches some of them may move from scientifically wrong to debatable, to included, to mainstream. I use that example because it's so cut and dry that I don't, think, I don't think many people would stand up right now on your podcast or anyone else and try to claim it's a mental illness and you need to go get yeah. help rather than just live your life. Yeah. So we have to hear things. And I, I wonder and worry about that. I hear you. All right, I'm going to shift a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about hip hop because it's a big part of your brand. And let's go. Um, you know, it's you've become kind of um, known for it. Uh, you, you lyrics, you use, you know, what you did. I read in one of your quotes, one of your interviews is that look, people have been doing this with movies all the time. In news, you make movie references, you make TV references. Sure. And by the way, is there anything more indicative or descriptive of our culture? good and bad than hip hop. So it makes even more sense than reference. But how did, give me the genesis, give me the beginning of how it kind of started to creep into your, I know it's part of, it's obvious you love it, but how it kind of crept into your, into your newscasts. Well, I've been a music fan and had a passion for it my whole life. When I was appearing as a guest and what we talked about a little earlier, I would weave that stuff in sometimes. And it was like, oh, this, okay, Ari. And they, people know you here a little bit, but it was almost like the little brother doing the thing. And I did that for years on MSNBC. And all I can tell you is when people are like, oh, is this some marketing strategy? I'm like, well, no, because <laughs> I did it for five years. And as far as I could tell, I was there. I lived it. Nobody cared that much. I mean, occasionally online, someone might notice, but it really wasn't when you said it's brand or whatever. All these things, you just as you know, because you're such an expert thinker about how to tell stories and get ideas out there to the marketplace or the marketplace of ideas. Sometimes things, it's not their time. Yeah. Um, uh, or they're not at a platform where it matters, like you're saying it, but nobody's quite hearing it yet. So I did that for five years-ish. It wasn't like every appearance, but I was definitely doing it on the regular because that's kind of how I talk and think. And some people may have liked it, some people didn't. It only was with the beat, which is since 17 on, that weaving it in there and having artists on, it did take on a life of its own. And my observation was, oh, this is one of those reasons why doing it on a show is different. Like, Having a nightly TV show, sure. it is different in some ways. A, you get to bring people on. B, it matters more. So being a random guy doing it, I don't know that people felt it. I can tell you again, not to be aggrandizing, but I've had artists, at least when I was doing it on the on the show show, being like, that meant a lot. And yeah. it, meant, it meant a lot. I've been told by from people who said, you know, when their album hit number one, the president was, you know, shit talking them. And they were being told that they were a bad influence. And I'm not co-signing everything in hip hop. Sure, obviously. of course not. Yeah. But they said, 
to go from that when you're you think you're on top, but it felt to them like the elites and specifically often the white yeah. ruling class of America was always putting that down and now see it used in an educated or informed way to make a point, not not to be cute with it, to make a point because there's wisdom about life, adversity, capitalism, racism, justice in that music, just like country music has tons of stories to tell. So that was being told back to me by some artist, whatever, was like, oh, cool. The, having a show is different and now it's different because it's not one way. And I mean, you know that from branding, right? Yeah. One way, one way can be like, cool, it might be a, authentic love, but it's one way. When it comes back around, now I go to places, Donnie, and it's like, I never in my life when I was a kid that I think I would walk into a music event, music party, and they're like, some of the musicians want to talk to me. I have not gotten over that. I think it's uh, funny oh, and great I mean, by and the way, ridiculous. The, the, I didn't know that was going to happen. The guys you've had on your show is like a who's who. It's incredible. It's become a stop. It really is. Look, it, it, for, as you said, and for so many of these artists, <clears throat> it was a, it's a, I don't want to say validation because they didn't need validation, but it's a, yeah, not uh, for me, but yeah. it, it's a, uh, a move into a sphere that they're not usually a part of and with a certain, extra level of at least in our society perceived gravitas that I, I think any musician going on a news. So, I mean, forget hip hop, but particularly with, with basically the background is, as you said, a lot of the negative to be on a show like yours and, and credentialized that way certainly has got to feel, got to, got to be very, very, very fulfilling for them. I want to ask you a little bit what I'm curious about. And I know you could probably talk about in depth, you know, you're a 41-year-old bachelor, you know, a good-looking guy, hip guy, whatnot. And I would think I'd be reading a lot about you in page six in your personal life. And somehow, no, I mean, somehow it's no. not out there. I mean, I wish I could ask you about that girl no, and this first, one, you know, nothing no, out there. No, I'm, I, well, I make a very deliberate choice to be a private person about certain parts of my life. I mean, I mention my nieces, um, but you're not going to see me posting photos of my nieces. Right. That's a conscious choice. Yeah. Um, you know, I was I was married and I'm on good terms with um, my, my ex and that's a part of my life. But when we were married or when we were getting engaged, at that point, I wasn't sure. I know we live in a share culture, but... Well, it's not usually to me, up to you. I guess my point is that's what I'm surprised about because you're a very high profile guy and, you know, the the tabloids and the world likes to write about news people. And I just, it's so, it's one thing to want to keep it private. It's another thing yeah, that it is fair. private, you know, and that, I was fair, kind of surprised but, about that, you know. Yeah, look, you can't control everything in this business. We all know that. But yeah, I, I, I do think if you are consciously personal about things and within reason that I'll be respected and, and then not to, not to claim extreme humility, uh, but Donnie, you're interested in the news and some people are for sure, but I'm not, you know, you're not Brad Pitt. Big, I, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm I, not Brad Pitt where some, where people really, really, I get it. I'm not claiming that if Brad Pitt keeps it low key, he, he can still duck paparazzi at the airport. I mean, I'll just say that to, again, to sometimes people ask these questions like listeners and stuff. Um, I've covered, I've covered take musicians where I show up and I see there's paparazzi for the musician. Yeah. So that's part of their life. That, that is not part of my sure, life. I wouldn't yeah. claim that I, I, I get off at the airport. Nobody cares in that yeah. way. So yeah. Right. Um, yeah. What's the Ari Melba brand? I asked this of everybody on the show. The show is obviously about brands and how would you characterize your brand? Uh, I'll say both. The beat brand is all the news you need credibly, clearly, as good, we hope, as any other similar newscast at that hour on any channel, network, or cable. And then not only that, but trying to show you the larger legal culture 
and structural. Yeah, I was going to say that's part of the brand. I wouldn't just sell it. Yeah, I mean, your legal cultural lens is what separates you. You know, delivering the news is the first part of the way you describe your brand is price of entry. What and, and, and what any good news show does. What separates you guys is, and obviously it starts with you as a personality, but really the content that you bring, where there is this overlap lens that you're, because you are, same way when I'm doing a show, I'm naturally coming at it from a branding point of view. So you are lensing everything legally and culturally. And I think that's what really kind of separates yeah. your show. Yeah. So that's, that, that's my beat answer. And then the me thing is just like, you know, the best advice I got from a mentor about the weird part of ending up in this field is, is someone who's great. I'm not going to do the name drop, but it really works a lot of established people. And he just said, look, you do your best, uh, that goes without saying, you wouldn't even be on the field if you weren't trying to do your best every day. That's what you try to do. He goes, as for the rest of it, whether you talk about brand or who you are, he said, you got to remember, if you end up succeeding as someone who's drastically different than who you really are, every step up in success and fame will become a greater prison because you have to keep being that person in front of everybody and it's not who you are. By contrast, if you're yourself, and you succeed, it will be more manageable because you'll just be yourself. And yeah. if you don't, you don't make it to whatever, whatever level, you know you were yourself. It's similar to the kindergarten, be yourself, but it, it carries a little bit of that nuance of, wait a minute, if you made it really big, but you weren't you, and you'd always be like looking around to try to seem like the yeah. character, that's exhausting. Yeah, I'll give a corollary to that. I was given similar advice by my buddy, Michael J. Fox, when I, I was launching my CNBC show, and I said, you know, any advice? He goes, be yourself because the viewers will know the difference. You know what I mean? Like you're going to succeed, you're going to fail yeah. on you, but they're going to know if you're not you. And so, and I think that we're learning a lesson from Donald Trump's success. The one thing, I, you know, I can't stand it, but one thing the guy had was authenticity. You know, he was what he was. And and mm. I think that, you know, that's why so many people would say he's, I believe him, he tells the truth. He says it like it is, not because he was telling the truth, but he delivers it in such an authentic, true way to himself that people were not used to a, unscripted politician. And I think that that's, that's so much. Speaking of Trump, before I let you go, give me a prognosis going forward. Where, where do you see things shaking out over that? I mean, obviously nobody's got a crystal ball and I know you're not going to do it, but obviously we're in a moment in time where Biden just got his, his, his bill through. So he's going to get a little bump from that, but Democrats are feeling shaky. Uh, it's obviously just a moment in time. They don't have a deep bench. You know, Kamala's approval ratings are really, really low. Uh, nobody knows if Biden's going to go for another term or not. Or, where do you see 2024 shaping out? Let, let's assume, as history shows, that 2022, that will the Democrats will lose one or both of the houses. You know, there'll be the backlash that that is kind of part of history now. Where do you see the world shaking out in 24? Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's a meaningful question for the country. I I try to avoid formal predictions because I don't think they help much in the press. But I will do trends, Donnie. I think we've seen in Trump's ejection from the White House the reinforcement of the fact that he was a symptom, not a cause, mm-hmm. that there is many, many people now waiting to follow more or less his model on the right. Uh, there is not some great war of ideas going on in that Republican Party. And most alarmingly, um, all the talk about, do you, you know, do you take him seriously or literally? There was a couple of years where it became kind of cute or smart in D.C. to say, well, no, you know, the, the, some people overreacted. The press and the liberals or whoever overreacted. Really, you know, his uh, supporters understood and they never took him 100 percent literally. Yeah. Well, bullshit. Yeah. Uh, it was all literal. You talked about your coverage earlier. Uh, 
It was literal. I'm not going to go through the laundry list, but on the democracy front, which is going into the next elections, it's very literal. If he could have stayed in power, he would have, which means you're dealing with a would-be dictator mm -hmm. with, with a lot of money and a huge support network in a country that has problems with violence and armed talk of revolt. That's very serious. Now, the silver lining is, with all that power and his finger on the nuclear button, which any president has up till the last day, could he pull it off? No, he still failed. Because he, he fucking still, he wasn't smart enough. I mean, that, that's was, the scary part this time. It. You know better than anybody is, is the legal guy what's going on in, in, in various right. state legislatures. And, and had he teed it up, that's, that's how precarious we are and were. Uh, two or three, dis, uh, uh, three Brad Raffensburgers go the different direction, or he was a lot cleverer two or three years earlier and started stacking the deck. That's how precarious we are. And I don't think the, I don't think the average person gets it. I hate to say the average person, but the uh, so many people I talk to when I give them that speech, and these are very educated people. These are not, you know, they get it, but they don't, you know, yeah, well, but, you know, I, I, it'll be okay. And Well, no. Donnie, that's, that's also psychology, right? We're here on your, we get to go in depth. I don't always go to this place on air, but like it is, you know, we st you started this broadcast very early on asking me about my own family's experience going through a world mm -hmm. war and a Holocaust, right? Which is my ancestors. I didn't live it personally, obviously, but what the world learns from these things, that, that they happen in different places, they happen in places that are affluent, they happen in places that think they have civic democracy structures. And a famous book, It Can Happen Here. What you're talking about is the psychological disposition of people to say, uh, well, I don't want to believe the worst, not because I'm doing an objective measurement, but because it's too, too sad, painful, overwhelming, sure. or yeah. painful. So I'm going to hope for the other thing. And they're not wrong that there's a percent you could hope for. You could say, well, it's, let's just, I'm just going to make it up and say, let's say it's 40, 60. I'm just making that up. Someone's like, well, if it's 40%, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to focus on that. People do that as a coping mechanism in their life altogether. And what do you want someone to do with? We had Tim Snyder, a very smart uh, expert on authoritarianism. He's not someone who's famous because he hates Trump or wants Democrats to win elections or is feeding it. No, he's an expert on how authoritarianism takes root around the world. That's literally his thing. And he points to how there's a certain checklist. And if only one thing is checked, you don't usually slide into it. And if everything's checked, you often do. And there's a, there's a history to this. Mm -hmm. And he's showing that right now you got more and more stuff checked. And the fact that this January 6th flashpoint is recruiting more and more people on the right towards defending the armed revolt for a dictatorship, that's what it would have been, tells you another box is checked. And so that's what people need to take seriously. And I'm sure, yeah, you might be talking to people who, you know. Your psychological analysis is, is, is right on. Is right informed, on. But, but they don't want to think about that. You're right. You're right on. Hey, Ari, I now busy you on, man. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you've got a show to this do in an great. hour or two. You're a gentleman. You're a scholar. And, and um, congratulations on all your success. I like when the good guys win. Hey, hey thank you, Donnie. I will say in closing, because we're here talking branding, you, uh, anyone listening can always connect with me at arimelber.com. And if you have cable, some people do, some people don't, uh, it's 6 p.m. Eastern. We're also on YouTube and uh, love sitting down with a smart guy with a pod. So thank you, sir. All right, my brother. Have a good show today. Thank you, bud. Thanks. Peace. Peace out. Hope you enjoyed today's show and today's interview with Ari Melber. Uh, remember to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts. Uh, Apple, Spotify, anywhere. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We'd love to hear from you. And if you, if you want to watch it, go to YouTube. Watch our YouTube videos. 
Um, you can watch it there also, and please subscribe and also give us our comments on YouTube. And so we look forward to seeing or hearing from you again. We'll see you next time on On Brand. Hi, this is Jim Jeffries. I have a podcast out called I Don't Know About That. Each episode is a different subject. We bring an expert on and I say everything I think I know about that subject and then they correct me. Join in, listen to the podcast, you'll have a laugh and you might learn something. Follow, rate and review I Don't Know About That with Jim Jeffries. Now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. You can also catch video releases each week on YouTube.